The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with the Capital Weekly, and thank you so much for tuning in again to the Capital Weekly podcast. Uh, today's episode is our final special episode that's broadcasting audio from our California in Crisis COVID-19 conference of September 17th. Uh, we have already broadcast the other three panels of the day, and the last one today will feature Secretary Mark Galley. Uh, the California Health and Human Services Agency. Um, Dr. Galley is the person who leads California's response to the pandemic. Uh, he is interviewed today by John Howard of Capital Weekly, my usual co-host here on the Capital Weekly podcast. Uh, so you're going to get your fill of John Howard if you've been missing him. Uh, before we go to the podcast proper, I would like to thank our sponsors for the event. We could not have put this on without them. Uh, Kaiser Permanente, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, California Professional Firefighters, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, and Pandora. We are a nonprofit and we could not put on conferences or do any of the other things we do without the support of them and people like you who are listening and sometimes donate. You can donate at capitalweekly.net slash donate. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to John. I hope you enjoy this. And next week, we'll be back to our regular episodes of the Capital Weekly podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. If there's anybody that's busy, I think now it's got to be you. Uh, originally, I think Tim mentioned earlier, originally we were going to do this on mental health, which is one of the topics we hadn't done earlier uh, in any great detail. And the pandemic sort of subsumed all of that. And so our overarching topic is the, is the pandemic. Uh, as Health and Human Services Secretary, you're sort of at the top of the pyramid in terms of advising the governor, um, health policy, uh, health implementation, health issues. Um, so we wanted to ask you some questions about the pandemic from your perspective. I've got a few. I'm just curious as a, you know, not as a reporter and editor, but I just wanted to find out. Obviously, the first one is where are we on this? Can you give us an update in terms of, uh, in terms of cases, infections, fatalities, that kind of thing? Sure, uh, John, first uh, to you and Tim and the whole team at Capital Weekly and all of your sponsors, thanks for the privilege to be with you today. And uh, indeed, just uh, it's been a privilege to be in the role that I have really uh, helping support California's response. And, and I just, uh, it, it would be wrong not to uh, acknowledge the thousands of people working on our teams across Health and Human Services uh, people on our data teams and thinking about implementation, the planning teams about the future with vaccines coming up and things about uh, uh, really around mental health as you identified as an issue that's only become more clearly an issue through the COVID-19 crisis. So all of them, I just want to thank them for their tremendous work and the privilege that I have to help be part of that team. Uh, so uh, I always start when I think about the California response to the very 
first weeks of January when we were starting to put together briefing packets about COVID for the governor, uh, expressing our concerns, and then also early on preparing around repatriation flights and cruise ships coming into our docks. And the fact that COVID was in the in the news and in the media and people's minds early in California. And we were getting emails from colleagues on the East Coast saying, are you really worried about this? Is it really gonna be as serious as some people say? It seems like California is really amping up your response. Are you overreacting? And in fact, today we know there's been no overreaction. Uh, everything that we did in those weeks before the stay at home order in March were really important preparatory uh, arrangements for the state. And I am personally proud of the partners we've had both within state government, local government. You, you mentioned the California Hospital Association. Uh, I know just did uh, what was represented on a panel with you. Uh, our nurse colleagues, uh, uh, all, all of the healthcare first responders and professionals, lab companies, all of these folks who were sort of going about their business in California uh, really have come together in a tremendous way. And despite having a summer where we saw an increase in cases uh, after some holidays like Father's Day and, and uh, Memorial Day and then Fourth of July and some sectors that opened up uh, at that time, uh, you know, since coming out of that real increased surge in cases in July, I think California has done really well. And today, in fact, we're at uh, levels of cases hospitalizations, ICUs, the need for ventilators, um, that is lower than we've almost ever seen in this entire pandemic response. So I think there's a lot that California should feel good about and confident about, uh, but we are not out of the woods. That do, you we think need to. do you think you'll see a bump in cases because of Labor Day? I saw a question. people going yeah. to the beach and, you know. Yeah, I mean, we, we, the good news is we've learned a lot about being outside and how that doesn't have the virus transmit as much as being inside. We've seen increase in mask use. So all of those are good signs, but yes, people mixed in a way at Labor Day that they don't usually do, people got together. So we'll see in the next couple of weeks where those cases land. During the discussion this morning at the conference in the first panel, uh, one of the participants said, you know, we're waiting to see what happens as the fall comes. We're expecting a second wave and we think the fall is just going to crash down on us. Do you have any thought about the second wave, what's going to happen, you know, as we look forward for the next few weeks? Well, I think everything tells us that transmission, uh, really, they talk about waves. Some people, I, I included, yeah. talk about surges in transmission, that we're going to have COVID with us, uh, you know, for a very long time. It's with us today. It's just transmitting at a lower rate than it was a few weeks ago. So we believe that as people mix a little bit more, that the weather gets cooler and people go indoors, that we're going to see some increased transmission. We think our healthcare delivery system is well equipped to handle that. Uh, we continue to work with those partners. And then the power of our masks more and more become an incredible, uh, you know, shield and protector around transmission. So we think that even though it will be with us, that we can really control how high those surges go and that, that notion of crashing down on us, hopefully avoiding that. I know early on, uh, talk about masks, uh, people wanted to get their hands on N95 masks. And I assume those are still popular, but are these kinds, are these high quality masks available to us as 
the average consumer. They limited really to first responders and the healthcare workers that actually have to deal with this every day. Or can we get our hands on them too? Well, you know, uh, the mask conversation has certainly evolved. Uh, it's become political. In California, we know that masks are an uh, important part of protecting our communities. We've learned initially we were saying masks protect those around you if you were the one infected. But we've learned more and more that actually masks both protect those around us as well as as ourselves. And it makes a lot of sense based on the way I'm used to using masks in clinical environments and surgeries and intensive care units. But we also have learned that these uh, cloth face coverings really provide significant protection for people milling around their communities. And that allows us to save the N95s for those individuals working in pretty uh, high exposure, higher risk environments like healthcare settings, first responders, and in other places as well. So our advice is use the face covering um, so that we can use the, have the N95 masks really available for those people in those higher risk settings. Is there a, is there any uh, level of enforcement that the state now can do, and maybe has done? I know locally there have been stories about fines and this kind of thing, for social gatherings and public gatherings. Uh, it just seems as if people don't pay attention to common sense advice, especially when they're young. Um, I know I'm going to get a lot of letters now from young people, but I'm just wondering, do you have any, uh, if people say, the heck with you, state, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go out and, and socialize and dine wherever I can and meet with friends and stuff. What, what can the state do in response to that? Well, I think it's two fronts. First, when those uh, activities or urges happen in some of our business sectors, we not only have pretty clear guidance around how businesses need to curtail that and, and actually run their operations when they are operational. And so if we see blatant disregard for that, both at the local level and the state level, there are opportunities for enforcement, everything from fines to uh, really turning out the lights of some businesses if that's necessary. I think on the issue of private gatherings and people who are getting together, we talk about backyard barbecues a lot these days. That includes birthday parties and small other ceremonies. I mean, we know that you know you can't you can't go to everybody's backyard and say no you can't do that but i think this is where the messaging and the real idea that californians have done it once and that we can do it together keeping things small outdoors short in duration reminder about these again these face coverings all of these things can allow us in a lower risk way to get through the next many weeks and months uh and control some of that. So I don't see formal fines coming to households and backyards near you, but I think a lot of improvement around delivering a message that this is not safe behavior. And, and John, I, I just spend a second on the, the, what we sometimes call the young and invincibles, the folks who think they're young and even if they get COVID that they're not gonna get sick. And, and they're largely, most young people who do get infected with COVID don't become that sick, but they do become vectors for transmission in their communities. And I've heard very sad stories about young people who get their moms or their grandmas sick or their grandpas and fathers, and then bad outcomes happen. And, and that's the trajectory that we want to, to avoid. And it gives me a chance to remind us that protecting our older Californians and vulnerable Californians needs to be at front of our mind in the weeks and months to come. You know, one of the people that follows us on Twitter had, um, had come down 
had, been, had tested positive, had come down with it, I think is since recovering, as is his wife. And they were pretty careful. They, um, they wore masks, they wore gloves, they were careful how they went out and when. They seemed prudent, but they believe they got it at a family gathering. And when families get together, sometimes the masks go, obviously, some, who wants to wear a mask when you're dealing with your kids or your relatives? So I'm wondering at family gatherings, uh, do, would you recommend wearing masks? I'm asking that as a doctor, since I've got a doctor who figured I might as well get some advice here. John, I mean, great question. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about households, we're talking about people who have been spending time together in a house. Uh, you know, generally, they have exposure to the same level of, uh, you know, germs, etc. But when you bring even close family members you haven't seen in a while, that creates a mixing opportunity and an opportunity to transmit. And you're exactly right. People take off their masks at the end of the, the party when the food's out and when they did so well at the beginning. And that little opening is enough for this sneaky virus to infect lots and lots of people. Um, there's a lot of discussion uh, and lots and lots of coverage about the most vulnerable populations. So uh, the elderly are vulnerable. Um, people in nursing homes are vulnerable. People at social gatherings, younger people are vulnerable. People with pre-existing conditions. But it seems like uh, every other day there's a new group that we didn't know was vulnerable and now is vulnerable. I think of younger people now, and that may be for social reasons. Is there any way that you would characterize who's most vulnerable and who needs to take the most precautions? It's a way of categorizing. Yeah. So uh, what we know is there's a group of people who get infected and don't have the most significant uh, outcomes. They don't need to be hospitalized in a significant number and they don't end up dying from this disease. We know that so many, a large proportion of the deaths in California from COVID-19 have happened in individuals over the age of 70. So clearly the highest risk group are older Californians. But I will say when you look at that group, um, uh, black Californians, Latino Californians make up a disproportionate share of those who not only are getting infected and hospitalized, but also dying. So I think this cross-cutting between older Californians, individuals with undertreated chronic conditions like hypertension, other heart disease, diabetes, uh, end-stage renal disease on dialysis. These are groups that we see higher rates of hospitalizations and bad outcomes when they become infected. And you are right, and I'll remind you, young people get infected but don't get as sick uh, oftentimes, but they are the ones who become the vectors at those family gatherings for their grandparents, their abuelas, et cetera, right? So uh, it, it becomes a risk factor that we wanna really closely pay attention to, especially when being in the backyard is harder because colder weather. Mm -hmm. I saw a PPIC poll uh, this morning that said there was a correlation uh, between uh, your fears of getting the coronavirus and your income and family income. And homes with lower incomes had a higher expectation they might get ill. Families with incomes, I think it was $80,000, was the 80000 or more a year, the PPIC said it was about one in five, whereas the lower income, it was about four in five. And I, is, this isn't a medical question, it's more a political question, but from your end, uh, from the state's end, is there 
Do you have any notion of how, how, a good way to deal with that? How would you deal with that? Can you deal with that? Well, I mean, first, let me tell you why I think that's the case. First off, when we do polling, and, and, and it's not state polls, these are other, other groups polling, we know that more Latinos, more Black Californians know somebody who has either been hospitalized with COVID or died. And that is a direct reminder and talk about something that provokes fear and concern. It's when a close person to you has a negative impact from something you're worried about. And then the conditions that a lot of lower income Californians struggle with, they have to go to work. It's harder to telework. They need to show up. Um, they live in somewhat more crowded, congested living conditions uh, where we know transmission can happen. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we've really worked hard as an administration, and I credit the governor and the whole team for really pushing forward things like delivering stronger messages on uh, sick pay and benefits to stay home when you're sick, uh, supporting people to isolate in a, a hotel or a place that is not with all their family, if that's what's interesting, and then supporting people through isolation. The whole push around getting testing into communities that um, are disproportionately impacted. I think all of these are things the state can do to help support individuals, not necessarily all to reduce fear overnight, but really to give people some confidence that they can get the care and support that they need to not suffer the worst outcomes that we've been seeing over the last many months. Another issue that's come up is prisons. This has come up several times over the last few months. Prisons, obviously, by their nature, have a lockdown environment, people in close proximity. Uh, the most recent story I saw was out of Folsom Prison, where several hundred inmates, 850, I think, was one number, uh, and some correctional officers that work there uh, tested positive. And this is just within the last few days. So uh, in those kinds of populations, are there any recommendations or are there things you can say to people who are in those environments how to best protect themselves? Well, again, uh, you know, I think the prison environment, a lot of the congregate care environments that we've been looking at for many months create a risk just by, uh, by the way that uh, facilities operate. And, and we've done a lot on the state side to be able to both create lower risk uh, ways for those facilities to operate, but then also provide a lot of the supplies like PPE, masks, gloves, other things really help support people to reduce uh, risk, as well as the way that uh, meals are served and the way that people move in yards and et cetera. And then, of course, testing, making sure that we have the testing capacity to identify 800 people who might be positive, hopefully not symptomatic, and help curtail further spread. So all of those are tools that I think help in all environments, but are especially important in some of the prisons and other congregate environments. Are there any lessons um, that you've learned as we've gone through this and the state has gone through this? Um, are there any things we've learned from early on that we can apply now and hope, and if another surge comes, we can do things, should we be doing things a bit differently than we did before? Are there things we could be doing uh, better or are we up to speed on that? You know, I think it's really about delivering the messages that we have learned. We spent a first, First, uh, in the early, late spring, early summer, when we were talking about reopening, it was really, there was a lot of focus on when we're going to do this and when we're going to do that. But the how is critically important. And we've talked a lot, John, about the how today 
the masking, the physical distancing, the being outside, those are gonna be the tools that we can carry forward. Protecting our vulnerable populations, staying home when you're sick, um, you, you know, get your flu shot. Flu is a big deal, we haven't mentioned that. I think this idea of a twindemic that, that we're gonna have flu and COVID together and people can get their flu shot today and you protect know, ourselves for the fall. It's absolutely true and everybody says get a flu shot. And I've got them for the last few years, but I don't want to go into a hot, I mean, I'm a Kaiser member and I see all these images of, you know, people croaking in hospitals. I don't want to go into a hospital and get a flu shot, but even though I don't. Uh, yeah, perfect tee up, John. I was thinking myself Darn that it. one of the things that uh, a lot of the big health systems, all health systems, they're setting up tents outside and giving flu shots in parking lots. They, they, they're dealing with exactly the issue that you mentioned that a lot of people didn't want to go back to the clinic and hospital for fear of getting COVID. But we know now that you can successfully, and, and they put lots of people have put a lot of thought into how administration of flu vaccine is going to be different this time around and even more important. And they've done that. And it frankly sets the foundation for the day when we do have a COVID vaccine. We want to use flu as the way to learn how to do this well, smartly and in a low risk way. So, John, go get that flu shot, please. Kaiser will take care of you. I, they will. I, a bunch of questions, I mean, a bunch of notes just popped up on my screen. One of them was from Kaiser saying, hey, we have drive-through flu shots, so get lost. <laughs> there you go. And, and uh, yeah, not a Kaiser uh, advertisement, but certainly many places like Kaiser and our community clinics and our public health entities, they're doing that all over the state. And it's better to do it now so uh, you don't rush, uh, rush right when flu starts to pop up. If a vaccine does become available, uh, during the first panel, I think it was Carmela Coyle from the Hospital Association said, you know, if we get a vaccine, it's probably going to have to be stored in very, very low temperatures. It's not like you can go to your neighborhood pharmacy and get a shot there. Uh, so even, I guess my question is, even if we get a vaccine, what is the distribution procedure for that? What do you envision that? Looking forward, how do you think that'll pan out? So we've already been working with the CDC. California was chosen as one of five jurisdictions. It's four states and one city that is early planning process with the CDC and the Department of Defense that is involved in, in some of the distribution of flu and other vaccines in the past. So we're already working on that plan. Um, refrigeration and storage is a big part. We don't want to run into, hey, we don't have enough uh, syringes or vials to be able to deliver it. So California is already working on that, but even more, we're starting to put together plans to engage our community partners, uh, lots of members of the community so that we have a distribution plan that matches what the CDC and the federal government puts out as prioritizations, but also lifts up that important equity lens uh, that California is always so excellent at trying to put in the forefront. So we have a lot of plans, it's already, building and we're briefing our internal departments working with local county public health as well as the big systems to, to think through how we're going to do this and be ready when it is available when it is that we've determined that it's safe that we don't uh, delay distributing it to as many Californians as can receive it. Has working with the locals, you mentioned locals, has that been uh, positive? My Look, I spent, I, I spent yeah, I spent 15 years in local county government, right? I worked in San Francisco, I worked in LA, I understand the struggle and challenge. 
and it's a privilege to work with them. I mean, what a fantastic, amazing group of leaders, both thought leaders and implementation leaders. And, uh, you know, it is a different role being at the state, thinking about 40 million strong in this big geography, but we have always uh, appreciated that local perspective, worked hard to, to honor it and meet it and find places where we can support them. So I think we've done a good job. It's not always perfect, hasn't been perfect, but we continue to get better as we move forward. Okay. Um, looking forward, it, it, I mentioned this before, this winter and this fall and next year, I, thinking back to the, the pandemic of the early 20th century, 18, 19, 20, that era, it seemed to be two years. Cycle may not be the right word there, but it, it, the intensity seemed to last a couple of years. And I'm sure the fallout after that was more years after that. So looking forward, are we looking at a two years of surges and then a third year of less and a fourth year of less? Are we looking at this fall winter cycle or surge over the next few years in your view? You know, it is, it is hard to say. I think we often talk, uh, I talk with colleagues about a two-year two -year cycle here. Part of that is uh, the unknown is what sort of immunity do people have if they do get infected? Antibodies build up, we know, uh, but are they protective? And then what is the vaccine actually going to provide in terms of protection? So all of those are open questions that need to be answered before we can answer answer your question. I will say, though, John, that as we uh, because of California's tremendous level of preparedness, we are able to begin again to focus on things like behavioral health issues and mental health issues, the looming issues around housing and the economy. And the fact that before, before this, I was busy with my entire agency and state government working on plans to improve mental health services in, in jails and prisons, but in the community to improve Medicaid and offer a more integrated approach. So it's a real privilege, not just to focus on COVID, but to bring all of those elements back into the forefront so we can engage all the partners that you've had today on your panels to really not just move forward with COVID, but really catapult California as we had planned before and we continue to plan now. Uh, one last question, Mark. What is that behind you on the wall? This isn't an artificial setting or something. No, so, so look, uh, uh, I've spent most of my last seven months at the State Operations Center. Today, I happen to be back in my uh, 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 downtown Sacramento office in the Bateson Building, uh, the headquarters for California Health and Human Services. And I have four young kids, 12 and under, and uh, I, I take their artwork, uh, now a couple years old, but always updated with me. So that's what you see. And it's a reminder of why we do this work. Uh, you know, I'm a card-carrying pediatrician, and I love that work as well, but uh, these four little ones are, are the reason why I come with, hopefully, the vigor that California deserves in the role. I like kids, too, until they become teenagers. That was my experience <laughs> as a layman, so we'll, well see. Well, you know, I, I actually, my, my secret specialty, and I love it dearly, is adolescent medicine, so uh, I hope I, I love my own teens when they become them, as much as I love the others that I've served as their doctor. Great. Yeah. Well, that'll wrap it up. Dr. Mark Galley, California's Health and Human Services Secretary, thank you very much for taking a few minutes today. Uh, now get back to work, and then and I'll do the same. Okay, well, it's a real privilege, John. Thank you for having me, Tim, Tim as well, and all the sponsors. Enjoy your afternoon.